Now, let's get our Bibles. Let's turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Today is the last sermon in this book, and it marks the end of our series going through the minor prophets. I know, silently wipe away a tear. I want to just say a special thanks to Nate and to Josh and to all the guys who helped preach through that series. Uh, I watched all the sermons online when I was gone, and, and I know my heart has been fed and encouraged through this series. I trust yours has been as well. Well, when we read the Bible, it's clear that there's a pattern of God giving second chances, not only in how through his mercy he saves sinners and rescues and, and makes us his own, but also how God takes those same people who may seem too damaged or too far gone, and he uses them for his glory in amazing ways. Examples like Moses, the, the stuttering fugitive murderer who life had passed him by, and for all, all of man's measurements, everything had passed him by, but yet God uses Moses to be one of the greatest leaders Israel had ever known. You got people like David, who was a murderer and an adulterer, and yet God forgave him and restored him and actually used David in the establishing of the family line of the Messiah. Then in the New Testament, you have someone like Peter, who denies Jesus three times, and yet Jesus forgives him and uses Peter to lead the early church. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul, who persecuted the church, but Jesus saves him. And uses him in mighty ways. One of those ways is to write two-thirds of the New Testament. And then every single one of us who have been saved by Jesus, we fit that category as well. We, we may, may not be known for eternity once we leave this earth, but God has saved us in Christ. If you've trusted on the Lord, he's not only saved you, but he's restored you to value and purpose, and is using you, maybe in ways you don't even realize, big and small ways, for his glory. That's called redemption. And that's a major theme throughout the Bible, and it's certainly a theme of this book of Jonah. We've seen so far that Jonah the prophet was commanded by God to go preach repentance to a city, a wicked city of Nineveh. Jonah does not want to see those people repent. He wants to see God judge them. And so he runs the opposite direction. No, uh, Jonah jumps onto a boat. God sends a storm. They throw him overboard. Jonah gets swallowed by a great fish that God sends. And then that fish, after three days, spits Jonah out onto dry land so that God can now use Jonah for the purpose he initially called him for. That's where we pick up. We're going to read, starting off chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to ask for the Lord's help this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, 
Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for how you are already meeting us with your presence this morning, meeting us in the power of your word. We pray now, Lord, that truly you would open up your word to our hearts and our minds, that we would not simply gain more information today, but that, Lord, you would reach our hearts, change us, mold us more into your image, Jesus, that we could see your mercy, we could embrace that, and we could live in the good of what you've called us to be and to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You don't have to be a news junkie to realize we live in a, a broken world. And it's, it just seems to be getting worse where especially our country is in such upheaval and such division. I, even our state is kind of a, a focal point of all of that where it seems like competing voices are all we hear and the loudest voice wins the day. In that struggle, truth can get lost the gospel can get sidelined. And so I just think it's important for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, to recognize that especially in times like this, we can be tempted to two major temptations, two ways that we can get off track. One is to give in, to give in to the culture, to, to give in to uh, the, the sidelining of, of the gospel, to, to say, well, that's really not the issue. Jesus really isn't a part of this deal. And the other temptation is to give up on the world. To say, you know what, it's too far gone. I'm just not going to share the gospel. People are just going to get angry with me anyway. I just don't want to get into it. And so we wind up sitting back in silent, seething judgment instead. Well, the good news is we don't have to give in to the world, and we don't have to give up on the world because Jesus died for Sinners. He died for his church. And the gospel is still the answer. It's still the remedy. God's mercy is the remedy for both of those extremes and for us to avoid them. In fact, I'd like for you to hold on to this main thought this morning that when we live in the good of God's mercy, we will have a growing delight in Christ and we will have a greater desire to show mercy to others. It's easy to forget all that the Lord forgave us of. It's easy to forget we were not born good. And it's easy to pretend we don't still struggle with indwelling sin in our own hearts. God rescued us through his profound mercy. So thankfully, we don't have to give in to the world or give up on the world. What we can do instead is live in the good of God's mercy, which will cause us greater delight in Christ. That guards our hearts from being tempted elsewhere, and it causes us to have a greater desire to share that mercy with others. Now, with Jonah, even though he did not want God's mercy to be shown to Nineveh, Jonah certainly wanted it for himself, didn't he? When he was in the middle of the, that great fish's stomach, as we read last week, he was crying out for mercy. He was praising God for his mercy. 
And God graciously causes the fish to vomit Jonah out, the Bible says, onto dry land. And, and God doesn't just leave him there, but he renews the call that he placed on Jonah to go and preach repentance to Nineveh. Now, let's, let's not skip past the reality of this situation. Picture Jonah for a moment. He's been inside the digestive system of an animal for three days, marinating in the juices. So, unless God did some miraculous protection, he's going to look pretty rough. His clothes are going to be tattered. He's got seaweed dragging behind him. And oh, the smell that this guy must have been carrying with him. And so from all outward appearances and measurements, nobody should be listening to what this guy has to say. It would be completely expected for people to see him or worse yet, smell him and run the other direction. So picture Jonah walking into Nineveh. The Bible says this great city, three days to walk across it. He walks a full day, so about halfway through. We would assume about the heart of the city, maybe even the town square. And Jonah cries out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not exactly the most moving sermon. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's only five words. That makes it the shortest recorded sermon in the whole Bible. And since we know Jonah really didn't want to go there, and really hopes nobody repents, I got to believe it was a half-hearted delivery at best. So here we have God taking a stinking man with a horrific appearance, with a short sermon and a half-hearted delivery to a wicked people. And what does God do with all that? The people of the city Repent. It says they believe God. It doesn't say they believe Jonah. It says they believe God as if God himself just spoke to them. And they repent. Not just a change of feeling and philosophy, but the Bible even describes outward things they did. They put on sackcloth, which is this rough kind of burlap, and then they, they stopped eating for a while which, and fasted and even made their animals fast. These, these, are, these are outward signs of grief, real sorrow for their sin against a holy God that they're just beginning to know who he is. Over 120,000 people repent. One commentator calls this the greatest mass conversion in history. Now, it's, it's important for us to understand repentance as the Bible uses that word. It does not mean simply apologizing to God for our sin. There's an act involved, and that act is turning from my sin and turning to God. And under the new covenant, it means placing exclusive hope and trust in Jesus as the one who paid for my sin. Now, another thing that's important here, when the Bible says that Nineveh was a great city, in the Hebrew, that actually says it was a great city to God. So it's not only dealing with a large population and how big the city is, but that this city was already chosen by God to save. He has plans for the city. 
They're his. They just don't know it yet. Now, I've shared this story before, but it was uh, years ago when one winter I lost my favorite hat. I know it's sad. We, we went into Target and uh, walking around, and this was like on a family day where we're just killing time while it's really cold outside. So we were wandering all around the store. So I, I walked in, took the hat off, put it in my coat pocket. And so we, we were spending an hour plus, which that just completely drains everything in me to do. But we, we did that. And so we're getting ready to walk out, and I reach in my pocket, and my hat's gone. Now, I have no idea where it is, where I dropped it. So I said, well, I guess I'm just going to have to buy a new hat sometime. So it was a while later. I went back into that same department store, go to the hat section on a whim, just looking for what I could find. The ones that fit, I didn't like. The ones I liked didn't fit. And then I found it, the perfect hat. I put it on, and it was like it was meant for me. And the closer I looked at it, the more I realized why. It was my hat. It was the hat I lost that some eager worker picked up off the floor, slapped a price tag for $14.95 on it, put it on the shelf. Now, maybe you're having the mixed emotions I'm having. Super happy I found my favorite hat. Really grossed out. That's what they did finding random clothing and selling it to the public. <laughs> now, in that moment, my first instinct, as I'm just kind of chuckling and ooh, at the same time, I'm just, I want to I rip that price tag off and put on my hat and walk out the door. But then I think, okay, security cameras and, hmm, <laughs> that headline would be interesting. Pastor arrested for shoplifting. <laughs> and the byline is, irony, his last name is Crook. Ha, ha, ha. So I, I paused, I thought better of it. I walked over to the nearest worker in that department, told her the story. She laughed, pulled off the price tag. She said, here, just take it. I said, thank you. And she's like, by the way, don't lose your coat. We can get money for that too. <laughs> Again, I kind of laughed and I went, ugh. She, she understood I, I had found what already belonged to me. She wasn't going to make me pay for it again. I found what was lost. It already belonged to me. And so I I took possession of it again. That's what's happening here with Nineveh. God already owned the city. They were already his. They just didn't know it yet. And what a beautiful picture of salvation in Christ. God reclaiming what's already his. Jesus said, Father, I've not lost one that you've given to me. That includes us as well. God reveals the gospel to us causes us to turn and repent and trust in him. We get to enjoy relationship with Christ, the one who made us, the one who did pay for us with his own blood. And now we are his. And now we get to walk and live in the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of that finished work of Christ, the goodness of God's mercy every day. God showed great mercy to Nineveh. And how did they respond? They, they repented. God took back what was already his. How did Jonah respond? Not so good. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. All those were meant to be insults, by the way. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Wow. I mean, hear hear that that accusation. Hear, Hear that railing against God. See there, God, I knew you were gonna do this. You should have destroyed them, but no, you had to go show them mercy. That's why I ran from you, because I know you're so gracious and good. By the way, would you just kill me now? Now, let's not forget one day, 24 hours prior, Jonah in the fish, praising God for his mercy. And now, when it comes to other people, he's cursing God's mercy. What a switch. Even though God saved his life at least twice, from drowning, then from the fish, and then, even greater than that, God used Jonah and his mediocre sermon to save over 120,000 people. Shouldn't Jonah be rejoicing? Instead, he's angry. Jonah, in this moment believes that his desire for justice is more noble than God's desire to show mercy. Self-righteousness comes from forgetfulness, comes from a short memory. We forget how merciful God has been to us. We forget all that we've been forgiven of and Therefore, we are tempted to withhold forgiveness or grace or mercy from others. But even as Jonah is is sitting here and he's he's pouting about God and, and how God saved Nineveh, God is still compassionate and patient with Jonah. And he gently asks Jonah, should you be angry that I've done good? In other words, is it right for you to to hate my mercy? For others, but you wanted it for yourself? Shouldn't you be happy? Jonah is instead responding with self righteousness, which basically says, I'm better than everyone else. But now he adds to that self pity, which says, I have it worse than everybody else. That's a deadly combination. Both of these are wrong responses to God's mercy. Because they are rooted in thinking too much of me and not enough of God and of others. But God is still faithful. He's still gracious. He's still good to remind us of all that we've been forgiven of. As much as we've failed God, he's never failed us. Times we may have walked away from God, he never left us. And here we are this morning preserved and loved by Jesus. God's faithful to remind us of those things, to to get our eyes off of self and onto Christ. That's when we start seeing things more clearly. 
In his selfish anger, Jonah leaves Nineveh, goes out into the hot desert, makes a little hut for himself. He prefers to be alone in the hot desert than to be around these newly converted Ninevites. And he sits down and he watches the city. Jonah becomes a spectator. Instead of working with the people and and telling them about God and, and teaching them, no, he sits on the sidelines and he watches, probably hoping God would destroy Nineveh anyway. And if he did, Jonah wanted a front row seat. Now, as appalling as Jonah's behavior is, and it's meant to be stark to us, we all know what it's like to be more concerned for our own comfort than doing the will of God. We all know what that feels like. When, when God prompts us to go to a, a, a non-Christian and share the gospel, it could be that neighbor across the street, and our mind floods with a million excuses. We all know what that feels like. We know what it feels like to fill up the family calendar with anything and everything, and then when it comes time for looking for areas and time of fellowship or discipleship, we just don't have time. We all know what it feels like when, when things like social media, which can be used for great encouragement of one another, can often be used as one more way to, to morbidly spectate into other people's lives without engaging without fellowship, without discipleship, and it somehow feels like we have when we haven't. We all know what that feels like. But God is graciously calling us out of our comfort zones. I don't mean that in only a generic way, that he's always doing that with the church, but I mean specifically for cross of grace and specifically for now. It's clear through the pandemic, through all of the the lockdown and all of the stuff we've walked through, none of it's been fun. We all want it to lift, but we have to be aware that there are areas of our hearts that may have become a little too comfortable with the isolation, a little too comfortable with not having people over, with not engaging others, with disconnection. And it's almost like these these privacy fences have been built around our hearts, something a year ago we would have never imagined, and yet there it is. But God, in his mercy, is pointing us to a, a horrible example like Jonah and showing us if God has mercy with him, how much mercy would God give to us. If God is showing us that there are times when we are tempted to sit back in comfort, sit back in judgment, God meets us with mercy and says, do you do well to sit back? Should you not press in like I have welcomed you into my family? God's not condemning his own. He's convicting us in a helpful way that we need to start engaging each other again and not just on a Sunday morning. We're called to live out life together. We're called to celebrate this life together. And when we're hurting, just like the example of our prayers this morning, we're called to hurt with each other and come alongside each other. That can't be done with a distance. God is calling his church to get out of our comfort zones and begin to pursue each other again. When we're tempted to push each other away, God is showing us how he's drawing us together again by his grace. And as for Jonah, 
in his moment of self-righteousness and self-pity, God shows even more mercy to him as the story continues that God, as Jonah's sitting there in the hot sun, God causes a plant to actively grow up over Jonah. It's like a tree with great big leaves that shades him from the sun. And it, it came up almost like overnight. So Jonah knows this is not a natural thing, that God did it. How kind of God. How, how profoundly compassionate of God to show mercy. I mean, wouldn't we all be tempted to give Jonah like the worst sunburn of his life? But God gives him shade, the one who doesn't deserve it, the one who displayed such selfishness, and yet God shows compassion. And how did Jonah respond to that? Well, the Bible says he was exceedingly glad, the exact opposite of exceedingly angry with God. Now his shade is there. He's exceedingly glad. Do you realize this is the first and only time in the whole book of Jonah where Jonah's happy? Isn't that telling? When he's comforted, when it's about him. Now, God is being compassionate, but that's not all God is doing to Jonah, is it? Look at verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. That's a phrase you don't expect to see in the Bible. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Another common theme, Jonah wants to die repeatedly. But, but look at what's happening. Look what we're being shown here. All through this book, God's active sovereign hand at work. God hurled the storm, appointed the fish, and now three times in this passage, he appoints a plant and a worm and wind. God's up to something. And true to form, Jonah, he takes another emotional plunge. He goes from being angry at God from showing mercy to being exceedingly glad that he had shade to now being angry again that God took the shade away and he wants to die again. God is exposing a hard truth. Jonah's happiness is rooted in himself and not in God. And in God's compassion, he's patiently revealing to Jonah the condition of his own heart. Look at verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Question mark? End of book? <laughs> Strange way to end the book, but it's, I think, very fitting to end with a question. One of only two books in the Bible to do so. God says, Jonah, if you're pitying a plant for your own comfort, how much more should I pity a large city full of people who don't know right from wrong, should I not show them mercy? Oh, and lots of animals too. How kind of God. 
how patient God was with Nineveh, not only sparing them from destruction, but making them his own. And how kind and patient and merciful of God to take time and teach Jonah the condition of his own heart. Now, I like happy endings as much as anybody, but conflict is not resolved here. The storyline is not neatly tied up. We don't know if, how Jonah's life plays out. We don't know if he, if he really learned to delight in God's mercy. The Bible doesn't say. But I think the question is not simply for us to look and ask, how could Jonah be such a jerk? How, how could he be so self-righteous, as kind and merciful as God has been to repeatedly rescue him and be patient with him? How could Jonah respond to God with such self-righteousness and self-pity? I don't think that's the question we should leave the book with. This is in the Bible so that we'll ask that question of our own hearts. Has God been merciful to me? Has he given me so much more than I deserve? Has he not been with me through every difficult time? And yet, how quickly does my heart forget? How quickly does my heart look at other people whom I disagree with? And instead of grace, instead of patience, instead of mercy, what comes out of me is judgment and distance and isolation. Even if nothing comes out of my mouth, the silent judgment just kind of seethes inside. God wants to show us his amazing mercy. The mercy that you and I have been given that is so much more clear through Christ that you and I get to see today. That as we examine our own hearts, that God, full of grace, would help us ask questions of our own hearts. Do I respond to others in self-righteous judgment? Or do I remember how much God has forgiven me of? Am I living in bitterness and self-pity because I don't think God has given me the good I deserve? Or do I see all the good God has done and am able to delight in Christ? Am I holding someone hostage in my bitterness and unforgiveness? Or am I able to forgive because I know how much Jesus forgave me? The Pharisees in Jesus' time were the face of self-righteousness, always demanding everyone else obey the law, but neglecting their own hearts. And Jesus, in rebuking them, on one instance, points back to this very story and says this in Matthew 12. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold... Something greater than Jonah is here. Wow. If Nineveh repented from a half-hearted sermon from Jonah, how much more should we hear the truth, we who hear the very words of the Son of God, to repent and trust in him? 
We have something greater than Jonah. We have salvation in Jesus. But the question is, how will we respond to his mercy? Yes, for those who have not trusted in Christ, that is for you to hear this morning. How will you respond to the mercy extended to you in Christ? Will you receive it and rejoice, or will you push it away saying, not today? And it's also for those who are trusting on Christ, are saved, are disciples of Jesus, and yet we all know those areas of our hearts that we all struggle with forgiveness, with judgment, and God wanting to reach our hearts with compassion and remind us just how kind he's been to us. God showed us mercy, not by judging us for our sin, but placing that judgment on Jesus. And now we have peace with God. And that's the best news there is. And that news is, is really needed now. This, in all the upheaval and all the conflict, to know how to be at peace with God, that's the only way we'll know true peace with one another. I'll close with this. I was at one of the protests last weekend. I was surrounded by people who I have many differences with. But I didn't go there to debate. We went there to love on people, to look for opportunities to share the gospel. And I ran into a guy that I know, a guy who used to be a pastor and is no longer. And I just engaged in conversation with him. I said, so I know, the, I know why the protests are going on, but can you tell me what, what would you like to see happen? What would, what would be some results you'd like to see? And he had a pretty extensive list of different changes he thought should happen in the police department and, and in state government and federal government. And, and without debating him and without denying that real change in different areas is needed. I said, you know, you used to preach this. Don't, do you remember that for everything that ails us, it starts with the heart? Isn't that what Jesus taught us? And the only thing that changes our heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's agreeing with me. And so we just kind of start talking through. And, and, and again, I'm not debating the guy, but I'm just trying to redirect the gaze back to the answer that I can forget too, that I can get distracted from as well. Church, it's important for us to realize this world is not going to get better. It's going to get worse, especially for the Christian. We are going to be more persecuted. We are going to be more hated. Jesus promised we would. And there is no politician that's going to fix things. There is no man-made law that's going to save our nation. But the good news is Jesus can. The gospel is still the answer. The mercy he has shown us that we know intimately is still the hope of the world. So not only... Is God showing us mercy in his word to remind us what we've received? That's absolutely true. But he's showing us so that we'll remember how to share that mercy with others, how to get back on mission, how to get beyond the pandemic and all the limitations because the pandemic can't stop the gospel. I believe God in many ways is causing the mission to ramp up if we'll listen to him, if we'll take those opportunities. Because in God's mercy and living in the good of that. May he cause us to delight more in Christ and cause us to share that mercy with others. Let's pray.
Lord, you're kind and you're gracious and you are merciful. Not, not only to remind us all that we've been saved from, but Lord, to remind us that the gospel is the only hope of the world. What a beautiful reminder that you, Jesus, will not lose one that the Father has given you. And you have given us the joy of participating in that glorious mission to bring comfort to the hurting in areas where it's needed to enact change. But Lord, we know the change comes from lives and hearts surrendering to Christ. Use us, Lord, as your mouthpieces and use us to live those examples that we could bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.